is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by The Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know. Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse. Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person. Uh, I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. The original version was from a man's point of view. What you want, honey, you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, piano by the window, watching the cars go by, and uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliche. The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props in modern hip-hop terminology. That line there, TCB, it's an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words for music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. TCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love Cry. This song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still gonna do it anyway. 
Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists and gospel blues artists. But Otis had this song, Respect, which was his expression of a hard-working, dense-southern black man coming home after a week at work and saying... We're going to dance, and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that, and they didn't mind those pin curls and telling me you don't feel well. And this. We're going to dance and talk. We're going to party. Give me my dude. Give me my respect. That was, that was the significance of Otis' song. And it was a male macho, work with me, Annie, let's dance tonight song. Okay? Um, three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years and where all of a sudden Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib, black women's lib song where here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the world. No, don't hit me no more. Just come on. Give me my propers when I get home. R-E-S-P. And she tears the pants off the song. It was the same song. It was a hit both times. It just depended which world you were living in, which one you liked. But damn, it was a hot song. While Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Story. To hear more, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. 
I've been down on bended knee Talking to the man from Galilee He spoke to me with a voice so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels sweet He called my name and my heart stood still When he said, John, go do my will Go tell that long-tongued liar Go and tell that midnight rider Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter Tell him that God's gonna cut him down Tell him that God's gonna cut him down This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a, sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best records you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I'd think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it. For all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive, multi-million dollar enterprise, in his dorm room at NYU. And he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica, and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music, and I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be really... um, interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with it. In the 80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic. Like in the 70s, some of the 80s. And the magic of the music was gone. And I was just doing it because I do it. 
I was just doing it because that's what I do. And I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Pretty little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing round the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. first album we made was mostly solo acoustic and then it came time to do the next one and you had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band here's Tom Petty I never pick cotton Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live daddy died young working in a coal mine John would start to sing and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw, and at times it wasn't musical, but it was so real and so heartfelt that it, it almost brought me to tears. But then Rick would really try to push Johnny to do things that he would never think of doing. I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head and he's just like, I, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with a hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my Going to break my rusty cage. 
it don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in to say, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. This is beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career at a whole new generation of MTV viewers. Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And at the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words... The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And, well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is, in this great country. 
among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first. Your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from from the uh, Montana border. And and yes, uh, I do have a dream job. Um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning. So still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this. As, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about about Yellowstone and, and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing, uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it, it does get uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high. Um, and, and so it could snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August. Um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears 
and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, a uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise. You're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice, kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to obviously walk away um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible. That bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray, and, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their, their eyes are watering, they're, they're tearing, they're coughing, and, uh, and then, of course, you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters, but, yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's, that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, 700 grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there, there are probably multiple sightings, I would assume. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. It, it, it's a, um, a, a personal, you know, uh, uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears, and whether it be a bison, 1,500-pound bison, have a, a personal space, just like a grizzly bear, just like a moose. And so if you get into that bear's personal space, then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand, you want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer. And before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close. And then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get cl- too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly, Wolf, and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. 
This is Our American Stories. Black bears weigh between two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over 1,000 pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's um, you know in in North America we had the brown we had the brown bear which is also the grizzly bear and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food driven. Talk about those two things. Sure, they're they're very very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. And the problem lies that that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become around our houses, there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans. And, and so in, in, in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in, I would, I would assume, the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia? Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue to expand into, into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods. Now there's a mall. Now there's a housing development, perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food. And why, didn't, why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, become the place uh, to test bear safety products. Where, where and how did that happen, Randy? Sure, 
sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee, and it's made up of a bunch of members, whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks. And, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population. Well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it. And it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler, a polycart trash can, a dumpster, uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it. So that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time. Most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the, uh, I love Kabuk, or is it Kabuk? The Kobak, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her, and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Um, yeah, Kobuk uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobuk is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But, yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years, and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get in the most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, Bear cannot do that. Um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, someway, Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the destroyer, but... Uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into a, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year all summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish, we take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. 
They are uh, biting at it. They're chewing at it. They're rolling it around. They're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart. And, and, yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do. They do. Again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10, they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just, uh, you know, it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And, and if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps. They walk outside. It's dark. It's midnight. It's 11 o'clock, and they surprise mom and the cubs. Well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know, careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So, uh, well, well taken. Point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, again, we're not for profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves a webcam for our bears so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, we're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at Our American Network. Org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib.
This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. The arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show, and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories, because our men and women are out there every day, and always have been, all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavides himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant, Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, 
repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades, living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude for service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. You're going to love him. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network. 
ourmericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who was the man behind the legend? Here is Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs there, shined shoes, sold papers, picked cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn the skill. I needed and education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard, and I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learn the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> so I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia, but the Dern recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learned oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross transmetic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. <laughs> Feeling danke, danke, sir. So, 
I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg. And Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clark Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall, using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah, the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our presence was not needed there, to burn the flag, what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, Quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night. I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometimes. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again, running five and 10 miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor, but being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up. The latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye. 
the back, the legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter, he was riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist, and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his friend, and so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again. I was in another staging area waiting for an next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, Get us out of here! Get us out of here! Come in and get us out quick, ASAP! I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, My God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, Who are the people on the ground? He said, Hey, he said, it's that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Rides. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller, the guy that's in, he said, you can't go in there, you can't go in, it's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. And when we come back, more from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun 
over the radio, so he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice. As he says, he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly, wounded, and secure classified documents. Here again, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of Howard in the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area. And it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, he was on a helicopter. So they they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted and I was inserted into the body bag and I could hear that zipper coming up and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry. There's nothing I can do for him. But, oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I found out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. <laughs> So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying. I was moving so much. That's the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So it, we landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, 
Why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa. In that airplane that I was flying in, Matavak, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor, I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the beach pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, then I was awarded with a medal. And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story, as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavides. Boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavides recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud of being American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. 
I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country, and they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story, the Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American, and what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, and we also love to tell your stories when you send them to us, and we promise we'll do that. That's why it's called Our American Stories, because it's you and us making this show together. And this next one comes from a listener named Troy Skinner, who sent in a recording of this powerful testimony that he gave at his local church. My son, Tyler, was born very sick. One of my earliest memories following his birth is his breathing. His entire body convulsed so violently in and out that his ribcage practically touched his spinal column. I wouldn't have believed it was possible for a human body to do that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. He was struggling to force down every breath and he was failing in the struggle because his lungs weren't able to do their job yet. I thought for sure He would die within minutes. He didn't. Over the course of a few days, his breathing steadied, but his skin had purple dots all over it, and it was yellow, really yellow, caused by elevated bilirubin uh, in his blood. You might know this as having jaundice. Now, bilirubin is the junk that's supposed to be cleaned out of our blood, and a normal bilirubin count is supposed to be something like 0.00000001. I mean, essentially, it should be zero. Sometimes a baby is born with an elevated bilirubin, and their jaundice number is a one or a two, maybe a more dangerous three or a four. Well, Tyler's bilirubin number was well over three or four and kept going up. The liver is what cleans the garbage out of the blood, and Tyler's liver wasn't working, and so his jaundice number kept climbing. The doctors assured us that as long as the number didn't go into double digits, we'd be okay. And then it went into double digits. 
So then they explained, well, there's two parts to bilirubin. There's direct and indirect. And as long as direct doesn't go into double digits, you'll be okay. And the direct went into double digits. Now his skin wasn't yellow. It was green. I mean, seriously, green. <laughs> Sometimes he would have this crunched up look on his face and he looked like the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I would joke, it's not easy being green. Billy Rubin climbed to well over 20. And that's when I asked the doctors, how high can it go? <laughs> they said, we're asking that same question. They checked the databases. They called around other hospitals and experts in the field trying to see what the deal was. And they said they couldn't find any record of anybody ever having a number so high. And it kept going up all the way to 30.5. Tyler had a liver biopsy, underwent liver surgery. Consultation was sought from leading medical experts all around the nation. Nothing helped. We thought for sure that Tyler would die within weeks. He didn't. Tyler was sent home from the neonatal intensive care unit after two months, and we're convinced to this day that he was sent home to die. He had eight specialists needing to see him every week. Most of them needed to see him two, three times a week, and so every single day we took him to doctor's appointments, two or three appointments a day. It was on 12 different medications. We used to have to feed him by using a syringe to shoot the food down the back of his throat because he was too weak to suck and swallow. He'd be back in the hospital in about a month. He had biliary atresia surgery and bilateral hernia repair and hypospadia surgery and strabismus surgery and exploratory procedures and gastrointestinal intervention for reflux, esophagitis, and thrush and other issues, both serious and relatively minor. And because of his condition, he needed to eat every two hours. And so we'd spend an hour getting his food medicines prepared, and then we'd get him into his stomach with that syringe, and then we'd spend the next hour cleaning up his projectile vomit. All day. Every day. Tyler was sick. Everyone thought for sure he'd die within months. But he didn't. And the biggest threat to his life I haven't even mentioned yet. Tyler had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and pulmonary stenosis. His arteries were way too narrow and in the wall of his heart muscle was way too thick. Four times thicker than it should have been. He weighed five pounds and his heart was as thick as that of a 40-year-old man. We'd gotten to know our cardiologist pretty well at this point. We were seeing him pretty much daily. <laughs> so we had a relationship, and we asked him, be straight with us, for our sanity, we needed an honest prognosis. And he hesitated, as doctors do when they're asked that sort of a question. But then he said, there was no medical reason why Tyler was alive even at that moment. And he would likely not see his first birthday. And there was just no way he would see his second he should have died in less than two years, and he didn't. Why? God had a plan and a purpose for this boy born sick. Fast forward a number of years, we have a 10-year-old boy who still couldn't eat solid foods, 
Everything had to be put through the blender first, pureed. He had recently learned to feed himself with a spoon, so that was good. We prayed in the name of Jesus Christ that, and with, not just us, it was a dedicated circle of prayer warriors praying with us for years. And when Tyler was 13, he finally was able to eat non-blenderized food for the first time. We threw a party. We celebrated this answer to prayer with all of our prayer warrior friends. We invited them all over with an official invitation. We had an invitation blown up to poster size, and everybody who attended the party signed it. If you come to our house, it is one of the first things you will see. It hangs in our foyer as a constant reminder that God answers prayer. So the lung problem went away, resolving itself on its own, so the doctors told us. The liver problem with the impossibly high bilirubin count went away in spite of the failed efforts of the medical community. Many of his physical and developmental issues uh, were successfully addressed by highly trained professionals, doctors and therapists, uh, with uh, unreal effort, love, and patience from my wife, Dina, sustained by God's grace. And now, after 13 years, he could eat real food. Amazing answers to prayer. But there was still this ticking time bomb, his heart. The hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the pulmonary stenosis were not getting better. He saw specialists in Orlando, New York, Syracuse, Buffalo, Baltimore, D.C., the best in the world at what they do, and there was nothing to be done. Every few months, he needed to go see his local cardiologist, beautiful Muslim man, Dr. Hassan Abdallah. And every visit, Dina would say, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And he'd smile and encourage. And then Tyler started having these episodes where he couldn't get his breath, and he'd come into our room at night, panicked, turning gray. Dina would hold him and rock him and would pump his arms and legs, trying to get blood flow and take him into the steaming shower, anything to try to help. And Dr. Abdallah then started asking to see Tyler Every month, and every visit, Dina would say, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. Then the doctor sought second and third opinions, sending Tyler to medical facilities throughout the region. And suddenly, Dr. Abdallah stopped accepting payment for Tyler's visits. We couldn't understand why. We found out later, it's because Tyler was dying, and the doctor didn't have the heart to tell us. His heart was breaking for us as Tyler's heart, after years of struggle, was finally ready to just call it quits. That's why he couldn't breathe sometimes. That's why he turned gray. He was in heart failure. There was nothing to be done. All of the doctors had exhausted all of the options that their training and technology gave them. And yet Dina kept trudging Tyler to doctor visit after doctor visit. And after seeing so many echocardiograms and EKGs, she became an expert in reading them herself. And it was time for another visit to Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dina greeted him by saying, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dr. Abdallah politely smiled, got to work. And as he performed the echocardiogram, Dina watched as usual, but somehow it didn't seem as usual. The echo looked different to Dina. 
And Dr. Abdallah noticed too. He kept looking and he adjusted his view and he checked where he'd already checked. Then he went back again. He kept performing the procedure and taking much longer than usual. And Dina began to think she understood why. And the doctor turned to Dina and said, do you see that? And Dina said, yeah, look to her. Like the image of Tyler's heart was normal. Dr. Abdallah removed his glasses and wiped a tear from his cheek. And he looked Dina straight in the eyes and he said, who do you pray to? She answered, Jesus. We pray to Jesus. And Dr. Abdallah said, well, your Jesus has healed your son. And they embraced and they enjoyed a long cry together and they rejoiced together at what Jesus had done. One of them having just been reminded of who Jesus is and the other one having just been introduced to who Jesus is. And what a beautiful story. The Skinner's story, but in the end, an American story. How we really live, folks. Who we are, how beautiful we are, and my goodness, the heart we have. This is Our American Stories.